Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Going home for the holidays can be pretty dangerous. It's episode 295 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Marvel's Runaways has premiered on Hulu. Season 3, the final season, is on now. And I got to talk to Clarissa Tabot before the season started to air about playing Zavin and what it was like being in the final season of the show. We get into some other stuff as well. So we'll talk to her a little bit later on the show. Yeah, Crisis on Infinite Earths. The first three parts have happened. We're going to talk a lot of spoilers, including that cameo that I said I was going to jump up and down and scream about. It happened. We'll talk about that coming up here in a few. And once again, we're brought to you by Mac Weldon. going to tell you about another great deal from Mac Weldon, along with a brand new promo code. So you're not going to want to miss that. You know, though, it all starts with comics. And a landmark issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles starts it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aubrey Sitterson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're pulling out the bags and boards or you're just firing up that laptop, hey, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading and a landmark issue for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles this week. That's right, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 100 from IDW Publishing. Take a deep breath because there was a lot of creatives involved in this. Kevin Eastman, Bobby Kernow, and Tom Waltz on the story. Tom Waltz also doing the script for this issue. Dave Watchter and Michael Dillingas, excuse me for butchering your name there, Michael, on the art. Additional art was actually done by Matthias Santanoclio, also Adam Gorham, Dan Duncan, and Corey Smith. Rhonda Pattinson and Bill Crabtree on the colors, and Sean Lee on the letters. That is a massive creative team. And rightfully so, because and it's going to be really hard to kind of review this book because there's so much going on. It is literally almost 50 pages of non-stop just something going on all the time in so many different places. It's one of those books where you're going to want to read it more than once so you can really truly appreciate what's going on in each little space that's being occupied. Like, for example, really to me, the main heart of this story lies in the relationship between Hamato Yoshi and Oroku Saki. That is one major, major piece of the story. And again, I'm not going to spoil anything about this book because I don't do spoilers in these comic book reviews unless I absolutely have to. But that's one of the main parts of this story. And it's very much a story about family, And about brotherhood and sisterhood and redemption, too, quite frankly. That's all woven in to the story. But then there's so many great little beats in this story as well. Like there's a really, really cool moment between Leonardo and Raphael that's out of such an emotional moment. And it's just the two of them together and how Leo kind of brings Raph back from something and how Raph kind of opens up to Leo in that moment as well. It's really, really cool. If you've, if you've seen the book, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't gotten it yet, that, that is going to be a cool moment. If you're a Turtles fan, 
that's one of those moments that's going to choke you up. I'm not I'm not going to lie. That that will absolutely choke you up. And then there's there's something going on with Casey Jones and his dad that that's really really crazy. You've also got the whole thing with, you know, trying to bring about the dragon and everything with Kitsune and and Karai is a part of that as well. And you see something really amazing that Mikey does in this issue. There's just so many different spots with so many different things going on. And there's so much action in this issue as well. I mean, it is all over the place. You even get a little bebop and rock steady there because remember, the city is overrun by mutants now. If you've been following Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at all in, the previ- in, in previous issues, there's a mutant bomb that has actually gone off. And now there are just mutants everywhere in the city. And, and it, again, they're kind of overrun here. And that's not a huge part of this story, actually. It's certainly part of it. But it's not a huge part of the story. There's just so much else going on in this main battle where the Foot Clan is and what Kitsune is doing. And stuff like that. That's where most of the story takes place. And then it's kind of all brought home by Splinter in, in, in a very interesting way. And we get to see a lot of good family moments in this book is what I can tell you. So if you're a true Turtles fan at heart, whether you've been for, with the comic from the beginning or even just with the Turtles from the beginning or off and on at any point, if you're just a big Turtles fan, there are so many great moments in this for you that you this is one of those issues you're going to want to get and you're going to you're going to look back on at some point and and understand how important that it really was and how it really took so much of the story and brought it home in a 100th issue you could just tell how well planned out this was by Kevin Eastman and Bobby Kernow and Tom Waltz and company and, and what's going to be coming for the future of the series as well, we've, where we've got the last Ronin that's going to be coming out in the summer with Peter Laird joining the joining back into the fold, and Andy Kuhn's going to be part of that as well. And then you also see that another very familiar Turtles villain is very much back into the mix in the epilogue in the in the later pages of this story. So yeah, make sure you read through all the way to the end and look at those final couple of pages because yeah, big big stuff going to be happening. For the future of the turtle. So in case you haven't noticed, this is definitely a pull for me. I mean, you want to keep reading turtles. And if you haven't yet, find a place to jump back in. So you can understand who all the kids, because there are some new characters that they're dealing with. There's a, there's a new turtle in case you didn't know that. I'm sure that you have, if you're a big fan, you already know that there's some other characters as well that you can jump in and find out more about, but everything has been planned out so well and, you know, getting to 100 issues isn't easy, first of all. Second of all, getting to that issue and making that 100th matter to the point where every little bit of it counts, that's what they did with this story. So bravo to everyone involved with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number 100. And thanks to you, by the way, for everything that you've done for these characters up to this point. And I can't wait to see what the future holds. Now, here's something that was actually kind of deceiving in the title and it's from dc comics and it's harley quinn villain of the year number one in this you know year of the villain that we're doing mark russell writing this one mike norton on the inks hi-fi on the colors excuse me mike norton on the art and then we've got dave sharp with the letters and carlos pacheo eneke and diamarta on the colors on excuse me on the cover art now here's the deal when i saw this i thought it was saying that harley quinn 
was the villain of the year. And this was going to be her issue. Actually, not the case at all. What it is, is it's kind of a villains award show, almost like the Oscars of the villains, so to speak. So, you know, there's a gathering at the Legion of Doom and Harley is the host. And, you know, they're handing out awards for certain, you know, things in villainy. And it's it's actually quite funny and entertaining in parts like some what some of these awards are and who gets them. We even get to see some of the acceptance speeches at certain points, which I think was was really, really fun. But then the the undercurrent of all this is there is one particular villain who feels like they've been disrespected throughout all of this. And there's even a flashback to this, right? And we get to see that this person was disrespected and we get to find out that they have a huge plan to kind of, you know, throw a wrench into this whole award ceremony and show their his, his show the fellow villains that they matter basically it's it's the big look at me moment but what's interesting is is how this actually unfolds again this is really hard for me to tell you without actually spoiling anything but there's a there's a twist at the end that actually makes things very very interesting but then what harley ends up getting in return is such a Harley ridiculous thing that you, you almost, it's a facepalm moment where you go, really? That's what, okay, Harley, whatever kind of thing, you know? So it's, it's funny because it's such a Harley thing to have happen. So this, this, there's definitely a capturing of the essence of Harley Quinn in this book for sure. No doubt about that. And, and the art is, the art's fun in this book. I don't know how else to really describe it. And I don't know if that's something that just bring that Mark Russell brings out in his books. He always tends to have really fun art, especially in his lighthearted stories that he has. I mean, he's done some more serious stuff as well, but in the lighthearted stories, he always seems to have a really fun artist along the way as well. Mike Norton certainly captures that, and high fives colors do as well. But this is one of those books that certainly stands on its own, and it's a nice kind of break and a side piece from the from the year of the villain stories that we've been getting that have been a little more on the intense side and a little more on the serious side. And this one kind of almost pokes fun at itself and it pokes fun at the whole year of the villain thing too, as a matter of fact. So I think that this is a fun read. If you're a Harley Quinn fan, I think that you'll enjoy it. So you can go ahead and grab Harley Quinn year of the villain number one as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. There were three parts to DC's crisis on infinite earths TV crossover And I will discuss them all with spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Sometimes things do live up to the hype, and something that's been hyped for what seems like forever now is Crisis on Infinite Earths, the big DC TV Arrowverse crossover. Plenty of spoilers from here on out, by the way. This is your one and only spoiler warning that you're going to get. We're going to be talking about the first three parts of DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths, and this one has really, really lived up to the billing. I'm not going to go through the plot. You know the plot. You watched it. I'm not going to go through every little bit of the show. You saw it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to react to some of the stuff we did see, do a little bit of foreshadowing, and basically just talk as much as I can about what has been an amazing crossover because we got the ultimate highs, right, of these amazing cameos and normally you know you don't get too too excited about 
cameos, right? But some of them actually mattered. I mean, yeah, we got to see Burt Ward. We got to see him do a signature line from his classic Robin character. That was pretty cool. We got to see the Titans from DC Universe. That was pretty cool and kind of unexpected as well. So we got to see them as part of the Arrowverse for the first time. But there were also cameos that mattered, like Tom Welling's Smallville Superman. That one actually mattered more than you might think because he gave up his powers to be a family man. And that was like the one Superman that Lex Luthor decided he didn't want to kill. And then that led the group to Brandon Routh's Kingdom Come Superman, who really kind of ended up being more of like a Christopher Reeve style of Superman, actually, if you really want to think about it. Because I kind of got the Christopher Reeve, Christopher Reeve vibes from him, right? And then he has also suffered kind of great loss at the hands of, let's face it, it sounds like the Joker. And it almost seemed almost a little bit injustice-like. So kind of a combination of several Superman. Of course, Brandon Routh's Superman ended up not being evil after all. Got controlled by Lex Luthor a little bit. And yeah, they, he did fight Tyler Hawkins' Superman. So yeah, that did happen. But everybody's getting along now. But, I mean, that's what I'm trying to tell you, is that there were cameos that actually mattered. And the one that had me leap, practically leaping out of my chair woke everybody up in my house. All the kids woken up because Lucifer Morningstar, despite all the objections by Tom Ellis, despite saying, no, nah, I wasn't in Vancouver to film the crossover. No, I was just there for somebody's birthday. No, no, no. You were there to make sure Oliver's soul had a chance to return to its body. That's what you were doing. Because they visited Earth 666, and how appropriate is that? John Constantine, Lucifer Morningstar, meeting on the first for the first time on screen in the Arrowverse. Just seeing Matt Ryan and Tom Ellis together. Just, oh, I could not believe it. I, I was so, so excited. I'm still excited. I get goosebumps just talking about it. I mean, it was it was like two minutes. No whole interaction. He gets to interact with Mia. He makes a nice little joke about about Diggle. It was like something like tall, dark, and annoyed by me or something like that. It was classic Tom Ellis, classic Lucifer. And But there was a line in there where he said to John Constantine, I owe you one because of Maze. And I don't know what that's about. That, I'm paraphrasing there. So, I don't know if we're going to see Constantine be some sort of a part of the final season of Lucifer, if something's going on with Maze. We've, we've got to track down this little whatever Constantine did for Maze. I need to know. We can't just let that be a loose end that never gets tied up. We have to know what happened with that. And if that was a tease that we're going to see Constantine in the final season of Lucifer when it hits Netflix... I'm all about that, too. You know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours in this whole crossover thing. I don't think that would be a, that, that would be too much of a stretch at this point, even though it seems like Crisis on Infinite Earths had almost, almost the blank check, right, for any crossover character that they wanted. We got to see Knox from Batman 89 as well. Kevin Conroy's Batman really intrigued me, too, about how that ended up being essentially... An evil Bruce Wayne, and it was really kind of a a vision into why Bruce Wayne has the code where Batman 
doesn't kill because if he kills, it almost unlocks a door in his mind. And then it's almost like a, he's not going to be able to stop at that point sort of thing. He has that code because he knows that once he crosses that line, that that's basically what he'll end up doing for the duration and how it corrupted him. And, and sure, part of it was it was a death that he just couldn't handle. And in this case, it happened to be his Earth's Kate Kane that he just couldn't handle the death. And that really helped push him over the edge as well. But then it it was really important for Kate to see that, especially with everything that's going on with Alice and everything that's going on in the Batwoman storyline right now, all the anger that's flowing through that story and that family. She had to see this to know that she can never cross that line. She had always said that she wouldn't anyway because that was her Bruce's code and she was going to stick by that. But, you know, sometimes you need a little bit of a reminder of why that's important. And not only was this a reminder, it was like a big smack-in-the-face reminder too. So, And Kevin Conroy was absolutely brilliant. The fact that he got the, this opportunity to play a live-action version of Bruce Wayne slash Batman phenomenal and it was very uh, credit to the to the writers Mark Guggenheim and everybody involved in the Arrowverse for making that happen because that is something that should have happened a long time ago and and finally did so bravo to them my frustration for the, for the monitor though still has not changed i'm like this guy doesn't do anything he doesn't tell them what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to do something or what they're actually looking for he barely gives them any information and then he expects success and he expects people to just follow him and he's really doing absolutely nothing and this is not a knock on LaMonica Garrett's performance because LaMonica Garrett's been great it's just frustrating having the monitor up there saying all you know giving all these dire prophecies and saying how terrible things are and you know how battles are lost and all this stuff and who's going to die and who isn't and he just kind of sort of stands there and, and like he can't help in the battle, other than to just kind of, you know, shoo people away with his little portals. Well, I mean, he did give Cisco his powers back, so that's something. So now we've got we've got Vibe back. Whether that be temporary or not, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I, I think it's a little bit premature to talk about that right now. And, yeah, he turns Harrison Wells into Pariah. I mean, excuse me, H.R. Nash Wells. He turns him into Pariah. We see everything that's happening with Harbinger. I'll get to Harbinger here in just a second. But the monitor's just so frustrating because it just doesn't seem like he's capable of doing anything. And then you see in part three, the one time he actually decides to try and fight and get his hands dirty, he gets struck down by the anti-monitor. And pretty easily, too, I might add. It wasn't really an Obi-Wan Kenobi moment where, you know, he drops the lightsaber and lets Vader kill him sort of thing. He very much did not want to be killed by the anti-monitor. And he even kind of takes responsibility for creating the anti-monitor, too. So it's like, dude, you're responsible for most of this stuff, first of all. And second of all, you're not really doing anything but standing there and making all these prophecies and predictions and whatnot and not actually doing any of the work. Yeah, he built those towers to try and keep the antimatter wave at bay. How did those work? Not too great. Maybe if he had a little help. They would have worked out better. So the monitor sucks, basically. That's the way I kind of that's the way I kind of had it going in my head. And now we won't have him anymore. And it's funny because that's one of those deaths that should have been really impactful. But it wasn't for me because I'm like, well, this is not a big loss because he wasn't really doing anything. Like when Oliver died in that first episode, 
That was impactful because I did not see it coming. Like you knew Oliver was going to die in crisis. That was kind of not in doubt. But to have it happen in that very first episode when you're expecting it in the last episodes was very, very jarring. But at the same time, you kind of felt like whether you saw the pictures that were teasing the upcoming episodes or whatever, they kind of felt like they would bring him back. And then they used the Lazarus pit, which was also very interesting because I'm not sure that's something that Oliver would have wanted. You knew that's what Mia would want to do, though. That that just makes sense. That's his daughter. She just kind of got her dad back. She never thought she could spend any time with her father, and she loses him this early, right? So, of course, she's going to want to do everything she can to bring him back. But then if somehow Sarah's on board, and Sarah, of all people, after what she went through with her Lazarus Pit experience, you wouldn't think would want to use that for Oliver either. And then Diggle gets super mad when he finds out what they're doing and the fact that he wasn't essentially wasn't there for Oliver when Oliver needed him when the battle was lost and he, you know, those those anti-monitor demon flying demon things ended up you know, he ends up succumbing to his injuries, but he ends up saving billions of people on Earth 38 in the process. So that death mattered and, and, you know, bringing him back also matters. And we'll see how that goes after what happened with the specter who, by the way, he just, they just decide to trust Jim Corrigan, the specter, the, the, a guy that they've met for like two minutes. If that they, Oliver just decides that he's going to trust him. What do you need me to do? Yeah. You need me to save the universe. Sure. You're just going to take this guy's word for it. I mean, what happened when you took the monitor's word for it? Things didn't go so well for you there. So it just seemed interesting to me that he was that trusting of the monitor who just like really just, excuse me, of the specter who just showed up and granted, you know, hey, Oliver, we need you. The multiverse can't survive without you. Yada, yada, yada. I get it. But I don't, again, the dude just got there and you've got your family on one side and you've got this dude on the other and you go with the dude. I'm that that that's a tough call for me. I mean, Oliver's going to be the ultimate hero, no doubt about that. But at the same time, you had a chance to be brought back and you still could have saved the multiverse. I would think you would still figure it out. But he decides to try and do the most Oliver Queen thing he can do and that's you know, follow in and and try and make the best choice to save as many lives as possible. And I mean, that's noble, but it's frustrating at the same time for Oliver. One of my favorite character dynamics, because we got to see a lot of characters branch off together, actually. Like, we got to see, you know, Lois go with, we got to see Lois go with Iris for a little bit to try and find one of the Paragons. So that was really, really interesting. We got to see a lot of Kate Kane and Kara. Now, and Kara went through a lot in this episode. In these episodes, she lost her mom. She's got to deal with Lex Luthor, who's apparently... With them, Luthor steals the Book of Destiny and starts killing Superman. It's a whole ugly scene. But it's funny how Kate brought Kara back from her dark place and vice versa. Whereas Kate gave, Kara gave Kate hope, but then Kate brought Kara back from possibly doing something really, really, really stupid with the Book of Destiny, which, why why weren't they hiding that from Lex Luthor? Why would you just make that readily available for Lex Luthor to, to use? I know that the monitor said, he needs to serve his purpose. Everyone has a purpose in crisis. 
Yeah, okay, he's got a purpose. Great, that's great. But why would you leave the Book of Destiny just randomly laying out there and he could start killing Superman? And I'm glad that Kara brought up my frustrations of, really, you're going to trust the Monitor? How how do we trust this dude? What's he even doing? So she was getting pretty frustrated about that and saying, hey, if you think Lex Luthor is a good dude, I'm not following you. Get out of here. Well, now they don't have to worry about following him because there is no mom monitor. And they don't have to worry about that. But they are kind of stuck at the vanishing point right now. Not sure how long that's going to last. Not sure if they'll be able to make a stand there or if the anti-monitor knows that they're there. There's just a whole bunch going on. But all in all, again, I'm not going to go through every little detail of this crossover. But we've got a month to think about it. Because it all returns with the back-to-back episodes of DC's Legends of Tomorrow and Arrow. That concludes the five-part Arrowverse crossover. And i got to tell you, first of all, already the best crossover they've done in the Arrowverse. And I know that you know they haven't done many. This one has lived up to the hype times a million for me. Not just because of the cameos, but because the way everything's been structured so, so well. The way that you're bringing in characters exactly when you need to bring them in, the way you need to bring them in, things that you could tell things have been handled with care on this series for sure. They've not rushed anything. They've not let anything really drag out. Everything's been timed out really, really well. And that twist of having Earth-90s Barry Allen the Flash vanish in crisis instead of our Barry, I call him our Barry because that's that's exactly who it is, Earth-1 Barry Allen. They did say that a Flash vanished in crisis. They did say that it was Barry Allen. But what they didn't say was which Barry Allen, which Flash. So that was a brilliant thing. So we finally get a happy ending type of moment between Barry and Iris, who desperately needed one after getting their guts ripped out so many times throughout their lives, whether they're married, not married, whatever. Yeah, it was a long and tough road for Barry and Iris for sure. So I'm glad that we got to have that moment. Especially right before things went ahead and ended. And they went to the vanishing point. You've got Black Lightning and Jefferson Pearson there now. He and Barry bonded over what happened to their respective dads. That's a kind of a terrible thing to have to bond over. But I mean it works for them. And so much worked right for this crossover. And I've said you know oh I can't wait for this. I've said that before about certain things. And I've certainly meant it. But this time I really mean it. Like, uh, a a month from now, I'm going to be glued and waiting, counting down the minutes until I can see the end of DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths on the CW with DC's Legends of Tomorrow and Arrow back-to-back on January the 14th. I'm so excited, but I've got that nervous energy, too. It's like, I really want to see what happens, but I know that there's only a couple couple of episodes left. Then we've got post-crisis to deal with. It's just been a great year for the Arrowverse in general. And this crossover just culminates that. And the final episodes of 2019 were spot on amazing. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast, once again, brought to you by Mac Weldon. You've heard me talk about Mac Weldon before and how you've heard me rave about just the quality that they put into every little stitch of clothing that they make, whether it be the underwear that they have, shirts, pants, whatever it is, you can just tell that you're wearing something that's just 
a little bit better. As a matter of fact, this is the year where the holidays, you get a lot going on. You're going to have some long days. I know that I certainly have. So, I mean, I throw on my silver boxer briefs that I got from Mack Weldon. They've got the anti-odor technology. It's not going to roll up on you because it's got the no-roll waistband, which I love. And then I throw on the Silvernet Polo for that. And it's just this, this smoothness to it, right, where you just feel like you can flow throughout your day and not worry about being uncomfortable. Sometimes you just know when you've got something better on you, and that is what Mac Weldon will do for you. So go to MacWeldon.com right now and enter promo code NERDY. That's a new promo code, so promo code NERDY to get 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com. It's really easy to shop on the website, too. There's no gazing at a giant wall of options. You just get what you want right away. It's easy to find what you're looking for, and it's easy to see why there's so much to love about Mack Weldon. Guess what? If you don't love your first pair of underwear from Mack Weldon, you can keep it on them, and they'll refund you. No questions asked. So go to MacWeldon.com right now and enter promo code NERDY for 20% off your first order of Mack Weldon, and you can experience the difference just like I have. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the first three parts of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Up next, some trailers to talk about more DC stuff and nerd news on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. My name is uh, Liam Sharp. I draw Wonder Woman. I co-founded Mayfire. And I'm a dear and close friend of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's beginning to look a lot like trailers everywhere you go. And that's why it's time for nerd news. Okay. So, not exactly the holiday theme that I might have suggested, but there's definitely a few big trailers that came out this past week, and I know that I'm a little late on some of them, but hey, the show drops on Friday, and trailers were coming out on set on Sunday and Monday. It's not, I'm not going to not talk about the Wonder Woman 1984 trailer, because i got to tell you, first of all, Pedro Pascal's Maxwell Lord is already amazing. I mean, for, for some reason, it's like... First of all, we're we're kind of set on him being the villain in this movie, which we weren't really sure who was going to be the quote-unquote big bad of Wonder Woman 1984, but now we kind of know that it's going to be Maxwell Lord, right? And his kind of, you know, messing with how, hey, life could be better, and oh, just think of the world that we could have. The world's pretty good, but it could be better, and that's kind of the line in the trailer, right? And now we know that he does something really, really stupid, and screws up everything. So, I mean, only time will tell exactly how this breaks down. So it so it doesn't look like Cheetah is going to be the main villain in the movie, but she will definitely play a role in this because I mean, you see that kind of dinner that Diana and Barbara are having, right? And and you know, she asks her. She, and Barbara says, "Have you ever been in love?" And that's when we get the whole Steve Trevor vibes coming back, and we'll get to him in just a second. But doesn't it feel like in this trailer? Almost like we're setting up for some sort of betrayal that's not really a betrayal. And that's what's going to make Barbara Ann turn into Cheetah. Almost like she falls in love with Diana. It's kind of the vibe that I'm getting here. And I'm, I don't know if that seems obvious to anyone else. Or if I'm picking up signals that aren't really there. But that's kind of what I'm getting at. And that when Steve Trevor comes back, obviously, you know, that's that's the love of Diana's life right there. And that kind of shatters the dreams of Barbara and so well I don't know that you know that that could be an interesting little twist 
in this movie as well. But I mean, there's just so much to love here. Like the heavy lean into the 80s nostalgia just feels right for this movie. I mean, how do you love not watching Wonder Woman swinging on lightning, right? The daughter of Zeus and she's swinging on lightning. Makes perfect sense to me. I'm not mad at it. I'm not going to sit here and overanalyze it. It looked cool and that's all that really matters to me. And then you just see you see Gal Gadot and you see Chris Pine together as as Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. And just a reminder of how great their chemistry was in that first movie and how much it just works. And why he's back and how he's back, I don't know. I'm almost certain it has something to do with whatever Maxwell Lord's got going on. So does that mean it's temporary or, or it's not? And does that mean if, if Wonder Woman stops Maxwell Lord that... You know, it'll all get undone and Steve Trevor will be gone again. Who knows? I mean, there's a lot of different ways that this could go. And almost any of the ways they go, I'm fine with, by the way. And we'll get to find out in the summer of 2020, June 5th, 2020, to be exact. That's when Wonder Woman 1984 will be hitting theaters. I cannot wait for that. Speaking of the summer, we're also going to have Ghostbusters Afterlife. In the summer, so no, it's not going to be called Ghostbusters 2020 like we originally thought. It's going to be Ghostbusters Afterlife, but it will come out July 10th of 2020. And you see Paul Rudd in this trailer heavily, and and he already kind of shows you why he was the perfect choice for this movie, right? And he's actually the one that helps connect these kids to their family's past. And it looks like we're talking about Egon's family, his grandchildren. So and you know and you know that they they find the trap and they and kind of Paul Rudd's character is the one that tells them, hey, do you know what this is? And you know, do you who are you really? And guess what your family did? And guess what things used to be like? You know, it's like te- they, I don't know if he's a history teacher or not, but he's certainly given these kids a pretty good history lesson in Ghostbusting, that's for sure. And then you see this town that they moved to that's very very creepy and it's got this creepy almost like old abandoned mine of some kind or drilling rig or something and yeah creepy things are coming out of there and it it definitely seems a bit more hardcore and scary than the original Ghostbusters and obviously Ghostbusters too right but there's definitely some fun vibes in this I mean getting to see Ecto-1 is fun and seeing Finn Wolfhard's character just kind of you know doing donuts in a a field with with Ecto-1 it's pretty good And, and the kids discovering the vehicle and all the things that it can do and things that we didn't know that it could do. I mean, what what happened in that time period between when they hung it up and now? I mean, the gunner seat thing, what is that about? Where did that come from? But I know that I've seen a lot of stuff on social media saying, oh, well, this is a Stranger Things ripoff or there's too much Stranger Things vibes here, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you can't see Mike and just automatically think Stranger Things. I know that it's difficult because Stranger Things Season 3 just happened not too long ago. That's what you associate Finn Wolfhard's care Finn Wolfhard with is Mike from Stranger Things. And why wouldn't you? Because, you know, that's his most recognizable role. And now you've got something else that's also got a supernatural vibe and it's ghosts. You can't necessarily make that connection. It's not a Pavlovian dog type of situation where you see him and you automatically associate him with certain thing. I, this is going to be a different entity, or at least I hope it is. I'm not saying, I mean, we can't know for sure, right? It certainly seems like it's going to be a different entity, pun intended, by the way, uh, than Stranger Things. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm a major Ghostbusters fan. I just really hope that, you know, this is the one that, that gives me those vibes that I was hoping for 
from the last one. And hey, we'll find out in July 10th, 2020. We also got a trailer, ironically enough, from the CW for the new Stargirl series. It's going to be coming to DC Universe. Can I remind you of that? That it's actually going to air on DC Universe first, then it's going to air on the CW as well. So it's almost like going to be the best of both worlds for the Stargirl series. And to me, that just shows that Warner Brothers has a huge, huge amount of respect for what they have in this Stargirl series. And it turns out Joel McHale is actually Starman. I thought he was going to be the villain in this. It turns out he was actually Starman and, you know, he, something bad happens to him. I won't say that he dies because, you know, as much as anybody really dies in a comic book series. And he says at one point the JSA must live on. So he gives the staff off to the guy who eventually ends up being his his wife's new husband, interestingly enough. And, you know, there's a big family move that they have, and, and Courtney Whitmore, who's Stargirl, having a little bit of a hard time adjusting until she finds the staff. And the staff kind of does choose her, right? And then you see, you know, the, her new stepdad is who was with Starman, and it looks kind of like his right-hand man, like kind of like his oracle. And now Courtney wants the same thing for her, and she's going to go follow in Dad's footsteps. And i got to tell you, Breck Basinger seems very determined and witty as Courtney Whitmore. See, this, this character's got a little bit of an edge to her, and I'm I'm digging it. But she also seems like, you know, you're, you're a teenage girl who's having a hard time adjusting to her new life, and I'm sure that that's going to be part of this as well. But this this show just really feels like it can work for me, and I don't know if it's because it's it, it's getting this big vote of confidence going in CW and DC Universe, but it just seems like there's something something that's very right about this series, and we'll find out in the spring of 2020 if that is the case. Or not. Although I'm kind of thinking we might get this a little bit sooner. I don't know why, but I just have that feeling. Going to stay in the Warner Brothers realm because, I mean, there's some DC movie news that that dropped this week. And I, and I definitely want to talk about it. And let's start with the fact, ah, here we go. The rap reports that the Flash movie is once again going to make another attempt at actually being made. I know. I, I say this... I, I say this in all confidence that I really hope that I'm wrong and this movie actually happens, but it has been a majorly rocky road. I mean, I know I talked about, last week I talked about the Lock and Key series from Netflix and how that, you know, was started out at Hulu and then that didn't happen and eventually found its way to Netflix. There was recasting that happened and all these different things and now it's finally coming out. Well, the Flash movie's gone through so many writers and directors that I think that we've lost count. At this point, have we not? So hopefully this time it sticks and we will make that July 1st, 2022 release date. So it's it's far off. So it's not like they've got to rush things here. There is a plan in place where Andy Muschietti from It is going to direct it. We're also going to see Christina Hodson, who's writing, who wrote Birds of Prey and the Fabulous, Fabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn, is going to be writing this Flash movie as well. But here's the deal. That must mean that Warner Brothers thinks they've got a winner on their hands with Birds of Prey and and the fabulous emancipation of Harley Quinn. Because otherwise, why would you hire Hodson again to work on yet another project? And not just because she's in the room and she's available, right? You you think that she did a good job on this, so you want to see what she can do with Flash. Here's my only worry with this whole thing. 
and and that's what and 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 it's it's because of past experience with the Flash movie, and that's that. Let's say Birds of Prey and the Fabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn is critically panned and just doesn't do very well at the box office. I mean, there's there's plenty of fans that are upset just at the trailers and the looks that they've seen about this movie. I'm taking it for what it is. I've already talked about this a million times. I'm not going to talk about it a million and one. Certainly not before the movie comes out and we all get a chance to see it. So I will talk about this more in my review, but if this movie doesn't go well, and then you've now got this this writer attached to the Flash movie as well, Warner Brothers could be like, look, we're not taking a chance on her again, and decide to once again redo this whole thing, and that will probably lead to more delays. And I'm just worried that it's a gamble at this point, but a gamble that Warner Brothers clearly seems to want to take because of what they think they they have in this Birds of Prey movie, so and and you already know who you have in in the in the director of the It movie. You already know how successful that movie was. So and and again, it's an it, it's an interesting choice because the two things don't actually seem like they go together, right? So the, you're you're kind of wondering if this is the right choice or not. But hey, I don't know what story they could possibly tell. The TV series hasn't already done. Please don't do Flashpoint. At this already, just don't. Okay, that's my one request. Please don't do Flashpoint. If you want to give me a legit Rogues gallery of like Captain Cold and and Heatwave and Mirror Mask, if you want to take that a different direction than the TV show did, because I don't feel like we got enough of that on the TV series. You want to go that route? I'm all about it. But I mean, how do you do the reverse Flash story better than what they did? on the TV series already, and there's and, and other villains as well. How do you do the speedster story better? I mean, if you, also, if you want to do Godspeed, I'm okay with that, because, again, they haven't really done a whole lot with Godspeed on the TV series. So if you want to go the Rebirth route, I'm fine with that, too. I just really hope... I really hope that this one's worth the wait, and I think that that's also added a little extra pressure that didn't need to be on this Flash movie in the first place. At least Ezra Miller's still attached. Now, more DC movie news, and that is that Shazam 2 finally has a release date. And it's very interesting because it's going to be releasing on April 1st, 2022. It's not a joke. It's actually happening. And that is just a few months after Dwayne The Rock Johnson's Black Adam movie, which is going to be on December 22nd of 2021. So, to me, I look at that and I go, doesn't it seem like these two things are going to kind of coexist a little bit, that they're going to be connected in some way. It just seems like that proximity would lead you to believe that. And it also makes me wonder if we are going to get some sort of a Superman appearance or connection or one of those things where Shazam, maybe he realizes he's in over his head a little bit with Black Adam, and this is a villain that even in his in, in his early stages of being a hero, he just can't handle on his own, so he's going to call up his buddy Superman to help him out. Now, whether that's Henry Cavill or not, I don't know. Whether that gets recast, I don't know. We'll have to see. I'm sure that they'll end up being a joke about that if they do recast him, and I'm not mad at that at all. It just seems like these two movies being this close together can't be an accident. If it is, fine. As long as you're telling me good stories, that's all that really, that's all that really matters to me. I'm just saying the proximity here seems, seems oddly interesting in that you could make these two, maybe not linear movies per se, because I don't want just one to be an extension of the other, but to have that connection there where you could easily put Black Adam 
in Shazam 2 and it will make sense based on the way the Black Adam movie ends, then I think that I'd be fine with that. And I mean, especially since I think that Dwayne Johnson is going to kill it as Black Adam. So if we got to see him sooner rather than later again, then I wouldn't be upset about that at all. At all. But only time will tell. Hopefully we find out more at Comic-Con this coming year in 2020 about what's going to be going on with that. Here's something that might be a little bit of a concern, and that is the Lord of the Rings series from Amazon is actually losing their lead actor, according to Variety. Will Poulter's dropped out due to a scheduling conflict. Now, I know what you're thinking. Seems a little odd, doesn't it? And I feel the same way. Seems odd because he's been attached to the project since at least September, because then that that's when the story broke that he was getting the lead role in the first place. Now, we never found out who he was going to play, or we, we really didn't know a whole lot about this series at all. Anyway, only that it takes place sometime before Fellowship. That much we know. That That is the one thing that we can know for sure. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to know how big of a loss this really is, just because we don't know what kind of character that Poulter was playing. Now, Will Poulter's a great actor. You don't want him, you don't want to necessarily lose him, per se, but but at the same time, you don't know what you lost because, I mean, obviously he wasn't let go. He left out of his own accord, so it's not like he what they decided he wasn't right for the role and they, they sent him packing. He's the one that decided that he, you know, would rather... Basically, he would rather do something else. When you say scheduling conflict, it's basically saying, yeah, I'd rather do that other thing than this thing, so see ya. Hopefully it was worth it, whatever he's decided to do. Instead, I don't want this to be one of those stories where five years down the line he goes, man, remember how I could have been in that Lord of the Rings series? That wasn't a great choice that I made. And, you know, that happens to some actors sometimes. But again, and I want to I want to preface it by saying this as well. Not only do we not know whose character would have been and how much of a loss this is, we don't know that this is going to make, this means that the show is going to be bad either. It's not like he saw the scripts and he went, yikes, I got to get out of here. See ya, like some... Fans have thought on social media. That doesn't necessarily mean that, okay? It just means that, you know, again, there was some sort of a scheduling conflict and he made a choice. And why he made that choice, I'm sure we'll find out at some point. And we don't know who's going to be replacing him yet either. I don't think it'll take very long. I think that they probably already had some actors in mind before they made the casting choice that they did. And I'm sure they'll give these folks a call again. So we'll just have to see how this all shakes out. But, I mean, it's still Lord of the Rings. Amazon's proven that they can handle these big money, high profile projects as far as series are concerned. I'm not concerned yet. Again, we haven't even seen a trailer. We've we've really gotten no plot details whatsoever. So I think it's time to pump the brakes on this, even though this is not necessarily the best of news. It's time to pump the brakes on it a little bit until we have some more info to go on. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about Marvel's Runaways with Clarissa Thibault. And that's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Vanessa Marshall, voice of Gamora on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy and Hera on Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I know you've been looking forward to the final season of Marvel's Runaways on Hulu, which of course premieres Friday, December the 13th. And we just happen to have Zavin on the line here. It's Clarissa Tebow. Clarissa, how you doing? I am doing great. Hello. Now... Clarissa, Marvel's Runaways has been a story that's been loved by fans well before it was a TV series. How excited were you to bring Zavin to life on the screen? It has been a complete dream to play this character. I wasn't 
familiar with the Runaways comics, to be totally honest. But once I found out I was going to be playing Javin, I ran to the nearest comic book store and saw all the things that they get to do and immediately was, I mean, it was more than I could have hoped for. So I was so excited. And it's been it's been such a joy to be able to play a character like this. Now, Zavin kind of unknowingly steps right in the middle of a very complicated relationship between Carolina and Nico. Talk about that, that dynamic as we head now into season three. Oh, yes. Dinoru. Well, I mean, I know the fans know from season two, they have some issues. I mean, Carolina was getting closer to Jonah and then Nico killed Jonah because Jonah killed Amy. And so their relationship uh, has its ups and downs and Devin kind of throws a wrench in that, or at least gives Carolina another option. Because Devin truly is just, you know, unequivocal love, just cosmic love for Carolina. So it's an oh, interesting dynamic. I think that Nico, Nico doesn't necessarily hate Davin, but because of the relationship, it causes a lot of friction and tension that's a lot of fun to play. I actually wanted to talk about that commitment for a second because, I mean, Zavin is basically, I mean, you want to talk about diving both feet into a relationship right away. She definitely does that, and, and she's obviously way ahead of where Carolina is, and, you know, for, for obvious reasons. But from the outside looking in, Clarissa, do you look at her situation and wonder how Zavin can actually continue this pursuit the way she is? Well, when I, look, when I looked into a lot of Zavin's backstory, Zavin's a warrior. Zavin's used to a world in which they get orders from the commander or uh, a list of operatives and then goes for it without a lot of questions. So I think this is kind of the same thing. When Zavin learns about the prophecy and learns that Zavin is part of the prophecy, that becomes their mission. Is to This is their mission. This is their purpose. I think a lot of, I mean, I don't know. I can kind of identify with that when it comes to some things in my career, there have been moments where, you know, something happens and it reaffirms that this is what I'm supposed to be doing to go forward with my mission, quote unquote. <laughs> you know, the one thing I think that's really interesting about Zavin and the, is that, you know, she is a shapeshifter, but we often see sometimes shapeshifters will try to take the personality of the person that they're shapeshifting into. But Zavin seems like Zavin all the time. Is that is that a cool aspect of her character view? She just has to be herself all the time? I, yeah, I mean, it's, I get a lot of credit credit in the show for that, but honestly, it's all the other actors who are copying me as an actor. So it's nice. I think that, I think that Zavin tries really hard to get uh, each character's um, mannerisms down, but the reality is Davin's still getting used to what humanity even means. So it's going to still be a little clunky when, when they go into a new, a new form. But it's, it's been fun. It's been fun working on that as an actor because um, it seems so seamless when you watch the show. But in all actuality, each Davin shapeshifts into a lot of different people. So every time an actor will need to shapeshift or be Davin for a moment, I'll have to go talk to them, read through their lines. They read through my lines, and we swap ideas. So it's been really fun. That's been a nice part of it. Talking to Clarissa Tebow, of course, of Marvel's Runaway. She plays Zavin. You'll see that, more of her, as a matter of fact, on Friday, December the 13th on Hulu. Now, Clarissa, as if pride wasn't enough to deal with, 
Now we have Morgan Le Fay coming up in this season. Talk about the unique threat that she's going to bring. Oh, all that dark magic. All that dark magic. Well, Morgan Le Fay is the biggest, the biggest bad that the Runaways have ever had to face. So it gets very big. I will just say that. It gets magnificent. Fantastic. And so many cool things happen. I'm, I mean, I'm as excited as anybody else to get to see how all of it comes together. Because it's, there's so many aspects of it that are, I mean, reading through the script is like, oh, wow. Can't wait to see how that looks. Speaking of things that fans are looking forward to, I think this is one of the things that I'm really looking forward to, and that's that you've got Ty and Tandy from Cloak and Dagger joining this season as well for a little bit of a crossover. Did you get to work with them at all this upcoming season? What was it like to kind of bring them on board? I actually didn't get a chance to work with Ty and Tandy, but um, I know that talking with my castmates and stuff, that it was a lot of fun working with them and that it was such a great addition. Because, I mean, Cloak and Dagger in the comics, to get to go and essentially see everybody in Marvel. Um, so it was nice to get to explore that aspect of the comics and bring that full circle for their characters. Speaking of which, there's there's actually been a debate about your character for a while amongst fans being a shapeshifter. We, we've already seen Zavin in so many forms, but the, the debate among fans is that what is her true form? What is her true gender? So is that something we might see addressed mm. this season? Ooh, I don't know if I can say. That might be a spoiler. I think you said it all right there. I, I think we could just I think we could leave it at that. All right. We're not getting you in trouble here, you know. That's 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 not something that we do. But I, I we we know that there's an original form and hopefully we get to see that this coming uh, this upcoming season. But speaking of forms, if you could shape shift to any form for 24 hours but you'd go right back the way you were after the fact, who would it be or what would it be and why? Ooh. As Clarissa or as Davin? As Clarissa. Anything? I probably want to shape shift into Oprah. Nice. <laughs> and just live, live that life for a minute because, uh, like, her life sounds great. I would love to just be Oprah for, like, a day. <laughs> Give, like, 16 people a car just because you can kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Just philanthropy. Get all of the favorite things. Have them shipped to my house. There you go. There you go. Well, I mean, since you asked, let's let's well, let's now do this for Zavin then. What, who, if if Zavin would shape shift into anyone for twenty four hours, who would it be then? Ooh, I feel like Zavin would be very strategic about this, um, and depending on what was going on, probably whoever the enemy was to infiltrate is my guess. But the enemy kind of changes, you know, so I don't know who that would necessarily be at any given moment. That's very, very interesting. One, one of my favorite scenes from last season with Zavin actually is when she's eating that donut. And I'm like, I can never, I, I've never had that much joy eating a donut. Can you ever eat a donut the same way again now after that? Oh, it was too many donuts. It was a oh, lot really? Of donuts. You had that? How many did you 14. have to have? I had to have. I think 14 or 15 donuts that day. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. It was awful. Because uh, I also, I mean, when we're filming too, um, for continuity's sake, it's like I'm on a pretty strict diet. Right. Just so that I look the same for every episode. So I wasn't used to eating so many sweets and also dipped in actual ketchup. That was real ketchup. That wasn't like color, food coloring or anything. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> It was really gross. And, I mean, I've, I've had donuts since. I will, I've, I've had donuts. But usually they're way more mild. 
It's hard to quit donuts. Or I'm just one. saying. I'm just saying. Ketchup or no, and 15 donuts or no. I mean, I'm sure people on the surface. Yeah. I'm sure someone's sitting sitting there thinking, I could eat 14 donuts. Think about that for a second. Yeah. Like in it's one a lot. sitting. They were vegan donuts. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but. They, yeah, that's that's a good lot. point. I mean, I just I just don't envision myself ever flipping a box open and be like, okay, here we go. This thing's gonna be gone by the time I'm done. No, yes. I, I don't see it. Exactly. Try two boxes, right? It's like a dozen per box, so it's crazy. Yeah. It was a fun day. It's crazy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was fun at first for sure. That's. I mean, it is donuts are pretty awesome. Now, Clarissa, we <laughs> do know that this is the final season. Of runaways, I'm sure you've got to be thinking, "Hey, I just got here, guys. Come on!" And and are you kind of disappointed that you won't get to tell more of Zavin's story, or do you feel like there might be other opportunities down the line to do that? Oh gosh, I hope there's more opportunities. I want. I mean, of course, selfishly, I'm like, I want to work forever. Um, but I would love to explore more of Zavin, like before they met the runaways. Like, what was the warrior planet like? What is the cosmic war that Davin's coming from? I, I've always been very curious about that because there's not as much written about that. It's more about Davin in relation to Carolina in the comics, too. So I'd love to see what, what was happening. Like, what's the prequel? Yeah, definitely. And Very interested in that. I know you haven't been a part a part of the show for too too long, but obviously it's something that's embedded. You, you I'm, I'm sure that you've made friends in the cast, and they've talked about what it's been like to be on the show. So, what do you hope that the lasting impression of this show is when that final episode airs this season? Ooh, I hope I hope that the fans are really happy. I hope that they feel like things were like storylines were written in a way that was satisfying and that they got to see what they wanted to see. It, it, it's kind of nice that the writers knew the show was ending rather than it, you know, like a show being canceled mid season or something and things don't get to be wrapped up. So I, I just, I mean, I, I hope that people walk away from this final season feeling satisfied and feeling like we did this story justice. We'll find out for sure. Friday, December the 13th. That's when the final season of Marvel's runaways drops on Hulu, you can see Zavin before that, though. If you haven't caught up on Season 2 yet, you've still got a little bit of time to do that because, man, there is some big stuff coming, and I think it's going to be a wild season, and she's going to be a big part of it. It's Clarissa Thibault. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. You kind of get that vibe that there's just so much going on in Season 3, the final season of Marvel's Runaways, right? You've got you know everything that's going on with Zavin showing up, towards the end of the season, this big war that looks like it's going to be happening between the kids and with Pride. And then you've got Morgan Le Fay coming into the mix. And then you've got Cloak and Dagger coming into the mix as well. I mean, if this is the way you're going to go out, talk about going out in style. And Marvel's Runaways available to stream now on Hulu, as a matter of fact. It's December 13th. It's Friday, December 13th. This is when it's coming out. So now you can stream the episodes of Marvel's Runaways on Hulu. And I know it's kind of bittersweet that it's ending, but hopefully, like Clarissa said, it will leave fans fans feeling happy and feeling like they definitely got what they wanted. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Clarissa Tebow for joining me this week to talk about Marvel's Runaways and some other stuff as well. Hopefully we'll see Zavin a little bit more down the line in, in something in some way, shape, or form because she does a fantastic job with that. If you want more from us here at the show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, don't forget 
to support our sponsor, Mack Weldon, this week. Go to MacWeldon.com. Get 20% off your first order by entering promo code NERDY. That's a new promo code we've had before, so keep that in mind. Get yourself some premium menswear. Also, do your holiday shopping there as well. You know you've got somebody in your life that could deserve something a little bit better than what they're wearing now, that's for sure. Also, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.